Well, amen, and let me just say uh, it's been a delight to be with many of you for the last couple of nights, but I want to say to the greater body as well, uh, what a privilege it is, honest to goodness. It's just the sweet providence of God that has afforded me the happy uh, grace to be just a little bit occasional part of this ministry, and I love this place. I love the leadership. I just uh, am so blessed to be with you once again, and I also bring you Greetings from Shepherd Seminary. Now, Bart mentioned that uh, we have, uh, that this church has graciously invited us to partner with them and to have a cluster uh, site here at the church. I won't go into that at all other than to say uh, that we, we are a seminary, we are a graduate level ministry preparation, ministry training institution, and uh, uh, we're, we're in Cary, North Carolina, but uh, I, I like to say we're local church freaks, and to whatever degree uh, God makes it possible to train for the ministry in your own local church, in your own neighborhood, and so on, uh, we're thankful for that opportunity. That's what we're working at, but we invite not only those who are want, anxious for a degree, who are eager for a degree, but those who might just want to uh, sit in on class, audit class, we invite you to do that. And uh, I warn you, I keep saying it's, it's not Sunday school on, I, I love Sunday school, don't get me wrong, but it's not Sunday school on Monday night, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's, it's real seminary, but uh, you're welcome to, uh, to contemplate whether or not there would be wisdom in, in taking the time and the effort to be with us. So that's that luncheon right after the second service this morning. Now, our focus this, the, this weekend and in, in, in the time that I've had with you uh, it's called The Family Life of Christ, and uh, we did uh, spend some time just emphasizing on Friday night how important it is to take very seriously what the Bible teaches us explicitly about the genuine, unfallen humanity of Jesus. He wasn't Clark Kent. He wasn't God dressed up like man. He was genuinely, took upon himself genuine humanity with all the mystery and the, the, that is involved in that. And then last night we spent a little time uh, talking about the nativity, and in point of fact, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I believe that uh, Joseph and Mary had probably quit Nazareth and had moved to Bethlehem because of the ignominy uh, involved with her carrying a child who was not Joseph's and who was uh, born. That child clearly was conceived before the wedding night, the wedding night actually, actually never happened because uh, Mary was carrying a child. But uh, they had returned to Bethlehem, and while they were there, uh, they had and tarried there for some weeks, according to Luke 2, uh, some time while they were there, the days were fulfilled. And so for some time, they were there in their hometown of Bethlehem, and uh, I, the Bible is quite clear that they were staying where animals were kept. I think almost certainly it was, a, it was a cave, and I think that the reason almost certainly that uh, they were staying there is because, again, of the shame and perhaps even the anger of Joseph's family that he had, in fact, taken to himself a wife who was carrying a child. And therefore, uh, I would read Luke 2.7 to say that not that there was no place for them in the inn, but I think it's better to say the inn, by the way, is an upper room, and it's a place, uh, it's a guest room, which every home included, and it's a place of honor. And I think what Joseph's family probably told him is, uh, we, we, we will we'll find a place for you, we'll love you, but 
the place of honor is not for you. And uh, therefore, so at any rate, that's what we talked about last night. And I think, uh, uh, and, and, and as I said in closing last night, that it's fascinating that the angel said to the shepherds, you'll find the babe, this will be a sign to you that you'll find the babe lying in a manger. The swaddling clothes are not the sign because every baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes, but he was laying in a feeding trough. And the reason that that would serve as a sign that the angel could say, I can tell you, you'll get the right baby if you find the one lying in a manger is because you don't do that with a newborn human baby. But that's where Jesus was laid. And I think, again, as we tried to say last night, that there was a measure of, of shame and ignominy and, and humiliation and even anger and so on that must have been a part of that drama, certainly on a part of Joseph's family where Jesus, uh, where Joseph and Mary had returned. So Jesus, uh, and I would argue that with, I think the, the text is, is quite clear, even though only by implication, that after the baby was born, Joseph and Mary would have found a, a home and uh, moved into a place where they could settle. But, uh, and, and 40 days later, they did make their way up to Jerusalem, and Mary went through the rite of purification, and they encountered Anna and Simeon and so on. You remember those stories? And then uh, shortly thereafter, I would argue the, the, the wise men showed up, and, and uh, they came to Bethlehem, and of course, uh, first of all, to Herod. I'd love to talk about that, the whole wise man incident, but I want to get into Jesus' youth. But the point is that uh, by reason of the warning of the angel, because the wise men, you know this story well, had gone to Herod, and Herod, who, by the way, was in with, within weeks of his death, who was suffering uh, just the most awful, excruciating diseases and so on, which were a function of the life that he had lived, by the way. And, uh, and, and, and now come these wise men, and, uh, oh, don't get into the wise men, Bookman. But, but <laughs> honest to goodness, there are so many things about that whole narrative, I think, that are, we're confused about. For one thing, the wise men were not following a star. It wasn't like the star would turn right and they'd turn right, you know. They, they saw a star, and I think given the fact that they were undoubtedly spiritual descendants of Daniel, and they had a, a, a prophetic clock that was ticking, and they knew that Messiah would be born soon in Israel. And so when they saw that, whatever, however you take that stellar uh, phenomenon that, that was the star, uh, that, that alerted them. And so they set out and uh, made their way to Bethlehem. I'm sorry, made their way to Jerusalem. Out of all naivete, they just thought, well, there's one who was born king in Israel, and the capital of Israel is Jerusalem, and the king lives in the palace. So they knock on a door and say to wicked, uh, uh, mildly insane, and horribly jealous Herod, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And uh, so you know the story about Herod uh, consults with his wise men, the wise, I'm sorry, with his own counselors, the wise men go to uh, the, those, those, those wise men are uh, royal advisors. They are, they're Daniel chapter 1. That's, that's what's at stake there. But uh, at any rate, uh, uh, the angel uh, warns Joseph and Mary, and they flee to Egypt. And uh, they're there for a time until Herod the Great dies, and then they return to Judea, undoubtedly to Bethlehem. But then they hear that Archelaus is, to be is, to, is indeed to rule. Archelaus, one of the three sons to whom Herod had bequeathed his empire, 
And uh, Archelaus was a man of uh, just a, an absolute tyrant, brutal uh, butcher. And therefore, uh, they, they relocated to Nazareth. Nazareth was the territory of uh, Herod Antipas, another one of, of, of uh, Herod's sons. Are you with me? Is this making sense? So now Jesus, as an infant, as a uh, several-month-old infant, I would argue, uh, Mary and Joseph resettle in the home that they had, in the place that they had made their home for some years and decades, undoubtedly, they return to Nazareth. Now, I said this last night, but let me just say it real quickly. Their home, I mean, uh, both Mary and Joseph are Bethlehemites. They are Judahites. They are sons of David, both of them. They are of the line of David. So their home is Bethlehem. But given the uh, military and social, uh, 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 act, what had happened over the last hundred years or so, uh, most of the Jewish people were living up in Galilee, including those families, and so they had settled in there at, at, in, in Nazareth. And Jesus is going to live his life out in Nazareth. He's going to be known as Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene. His early followers are going to be called the Nazarenes because they're following Jesus of Nazareth. And you have to understand that for 30 years, now, the Bible says in Luke chapter 3 that when Jesus went to be baptized, he was about to turn 30 years of age. When he was yet an infant in the arms of his parents, he settled with them in Nazareth. And Nazareth is a small village. It, it really, it's, I like to say it's a cluster of homes around probably two or three synagogues. So it was, it was an unwalled village. Uh, it was peopled by uh, farmers and, and, sh and, and uh, sheep herders and so on and, and, uh, and laborers. It's interesting that about three miles north of Nazareth, up on the Nazareth Ridge, is a city called Sepphoris. And a very, very important city. Doesn't make its way into the biblical narrative, but Sepphoris was... Uh, it was a city which, first of all, Herod the Great, and then after him, with some, some uh, exciting events along the way, but after him, his son Herod Antipas had decided to make the flower of the Galilee. So there was all kinds of effort and work and money being poured into the city. It was a walled city, a very important city, of Sepphoris. And I think very possibly uh, Joseph's father, I said last night, and please be patient with me, uh, I, I, I'm convinced that Joseph was and had been apprenticed to his father as, Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, <clears throat> was a stonemason. He was a worker in stone, probably not a carpenter, simply because, as I said last night, the word for carpenter in, in, in Matthew 13 and, and so on, where it says, is this not this Jesus the carpenter, or is he not Joseph the carpenter's son? Uh, that's a translation of the Greek word tectone, and it means builder. And uh, it, it, it was translated carpenter because that translation was done in a Western culture where you build with wood. But in point of fact, if you go to Israel, one of the things that strikes you, you can't miss it, is that there's no wood. And so, and it was true in antiquity. They had forests, but not, not the kind of forest that would produce beams and so on that you needed to, to build. And so you always build with what's close by, and they built with stone. So I think, I think the point is, here's where I'm taking it, that probably... Uh, Joseph's family, 
and exactly how long it had been. The land of Galilee was conquered by the Jews in 100 B.C. So it became available about 100 years before Christ was born. And somewhere in those 100 years, I think Joseph's family in Bethlehem had decided to move to Nazareth, and probably Nazareth because it was so, it was so proximate to Sepphoris, and there was always good work for a stonemason at Sepphoris. So I think the rhythm of Joseph's life, and we're going to talk about this in the next service a little bit with regard to Jesus, but the rhythm of Joseph's life was that he probably had a number of uh, fellows uh, from the village of Nazareth, very likely, who were also stonemasons, had apprenticed carefully, and uh, the, the, the rhythm in, in, in Jewish life, you don't begin the, the day with a meal. You begin the day by, uh, you're up before the sun, and you're out wherever you're going to work, wherever you're going to be, before the sun comes up, and you work until the sun comes up and gets hot. Then you break, and you go in, and you have a meal, and that's the morning offering. That is, the, in Jerusalem, the morning and evening sacrifices. That, that's when the morning... So it's a time of prayer and so on, and then you wait until the sun gets past its apex and you go back out and you work the rest of the day. Then you come in and have a meal. That's the cycle of the day. Does that make sense to you? So I think Joseph's family, I'm sorry, Joseph, his cycle would, I mean, the rhythm of his life, he'd be up early, he'd join his fellows, he'd make his way perhaps to Sepphoris. It's just kind of tantalizing because it's such a remarkably important, uh, uh, where there's always building going on. And, uh, and, and so my point is that, that they had, settled in Nazareth, and uh, they are, uh, and, and Joseph, I'm, I'm sorry, back to Jesus now. Jesus is going to live his entire life until he goes to be baptized by John. And even after that, he's going to return to Nazareth, and then sometime later, when he, when he uh, in, in John chapter 2, when he goes to Cana for that miracle where he changed the water to wine, the Bible says that at that time, he took his family to Capernaum because he's going to resettle in Capernaum. So, have you got all that? So, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's his hometown. He was reared for 30 years in Nazareth. That's the town that knows him best. He is going to move his headquarters, if you don't mind. He's going to move his family. He's going to take his whole family to Capernaum when he begins his public ministry because he wants to saturate the land of Galilee with his claims concerning himself and with miraculous proof of those claims. And, and Nazareth is horribly, horribly ill-suited as a headquarters for an itinerant ministry. It's up on a ridge, and it's hard to get there. Once you get there, you just got to come down. It's not on its way to anywhere, whereas Capernaum is perfectly situated. And because Jesus was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, he's going to move his family to Capernaum. And so in the Bible, in the Gospels, when he goes to Capernaum, it says he went to his own town because it took his family. But when he goes to Nazareth, he went, it says he went to his region. He will go back to the, the region of, Na of Galilee where he was reared. Does that make sense to you? So Jesus, and I, I say that primarily to make this point, that Jesus lives his whole life out in this little village of Nazareth. And uh, uh, I said that I, I think it's fair to characterize Nazareth and other villages of that ilk as, as clusters of homes around a synagogue. Because you see, uh, uh, and we're going to come to this in a little bit, but in, uh, uh, look, there are no synagogues in the Old Testament. During the intertestamental period, this remarkable phenomenon appeared called the synagogue. 
and that means a coming together. And it was just the place where you built your whole life around the synagogue. And, and you had a synagogue to which you went, and uh, there were three days a week, Saturday, Monday, and Thursday, when there would be public services. And those services featured a reading of the scriptures. I mentioned it to you before, it's so important to understand that, that the Bible is written, arises, that whole narrative arises out of an oral culture. That means you learn by listening. And furthermore, it means that you, uh, uh, listen, it's interesting. Well, I won't get too deeply into it, but the fact is that, that uh, the Jewish people were always more literate than their neighbors. They learned, they taught their children to read. Now, that's bec not because other peoples, other nations were not very bright or something. The fact is that there was hardly anything more expensive in antiquity than a book, a scroll. You had to kill a lot of animals. You had to hire somebody that knew how to do it. You had to skin those animals and, 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 and prepare the hides and sew them together and so on. Uh, books were very, very rare. And so, and so you learned by listening. And that's why these synagogue services were so precious, because you would come and they would make their way through the Torah and make their way through the, the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures week by week. I think every synagogue is reading the same passage and so on. But uh, So you would gather three times a week, and uh, Saturday morning was one of them. And of course there is this, this rabbinical, not, not rabbinical, there are a lot of rabbinical laws, but this is a Mosaic law that you should do no work on the Sabbath. And and although the Bible doesn't very carefully define work, the rabbis did, in fact, specify that in a lot of different ways. I can get into that. But the point is that one of, the, one of the specifications, and this is very, very true today in Jewish life, is that you shouldn't walk further than the Sabbath day's journey. You've heard that phrase, a Sabbath day's journey. And uh, by the way, the idea is not that you can walk that far. You've got to count your steps and then sit down and wait for the sun to go down. The idea is that it's a zone, and wherever it's about a, just over a mile, and wherever you are, as the sun goes down on Friday, you just define a circle about yourself of a radius of about a mile, and you can move freely in that zone, but you can't leave that zone. And if you're outside that zone, you can't come in that zone. Does that make sense to you? Well, you'd like to go to synagogue on Shabbat morning, and so you have to live within the Sabbath zone. And so, and so even in a small village like Nazareth, there would have been more than one synagogue. I like to say because they were Baptist synagogues. No, I'm not. I am a Baptist, so I can get away with that crack. But, but the fact is, that no, not at all. The fact is that, that, that you, 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 you lived within the, 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 a Sabbath day's journey of, the, of, of your synagogue. Does that make sense to you? Now, that becomes a very much a part. All right, so let me get to my point here. The, uh, I'm saying that Jesus, as a, an infant in arms, is brought to Nazareth. He is going to live his whole life there in Nazareth. He is going to, you know what, every, every season, every vicissitude that life includes, Jesus is going to live that. And again, it's so important to understand, he's living a real human life. Now, that's actually the point that I'm going to come back to, but... but uh, and let me say one other thing, because it's going to, I think it's an important background of what we're going to say. Uh, 
as time goes by, this evening more. This evening, we're going to actually, I, I've tried to tease out some of the places during Jesus' ministry where he does encounter his family, and we'll spend some time with that. But I would like to suggest to you and make this just, just I, I think it would be good to, uh, just to calibrate your heads to understand this as part of Jesus' life. Quite clearly, sometime between when Jesus, well, actually, and we're going to talk about this in the next service. All right. <laughs> Here's the point I'm, I'm, I'm headed for, that that the Bible is silent concerning those years between when he is brought back to Nazareth by his parents as an infant and the time when he goes to be baptized by John. And they're sometimes called the silent years. And uh, there are a lot of uh, fables and, I think, wicked and, 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 and distorting uh, legends and so on about Jesus during those years. I'll come to that in just a moment. The one narrative we have is Luke chapter 2. And it's, it's scintillating. I think it's so deliberately representative and so on. But I, I think any one of us, uh, you know, I, we're just intuitively and I think appropriately curious about those 30 years that Jesus lived there in Nazareth. And I think one dynamic that's important to include is this, that sometime between... Luke 2 and Luke 3, sometime between when Jesus at the age of 12 went to the Passover at Jerusalem, and of course that's the last time we encounter his father Joseph. Sometime between then and when Jesus went to be baptized, Joseph died. Now it's not explicit in the, test, in the scriptures, there is a rich tradition, but the evidence is simply this, and I think actually I've got this in the notes for next next session, but uh, the evidence is simply that every time Jesus encounters his family, and he does meaningfully in many ways during his earthly ministry, Joseph is not there. And uh, in, in, in situations where he would have been there and would have been dominant in this or that narrative, when Jesus' brothers come to take him home thinking him to be mad, Mary is there, but Joseph is not there. And of course, the, the final evidence is that on the cross, Jesus turns Mary over to John to care for her. Now, we'll talk about that this evening, but my point is that, that in, in somewhere in, that, in those, those years, Joseph dies, and, and this is quite clear and I think compelling and, and, and winsome in the narrative of Jesus' ministry that when Joseph died, Jesus, as the eldest son, would have stepped into the leadership of that family. He'd been the primary provider for his mother. He would have been the, the, the one who oversaw, uh, who cared for. I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, and I think it's encouraging to contemplate that Jesus knows what it is to raise a family. He is going to plow himself, if you don't mind, into his brothers. And do you suppose Jesus loved his siblings, his half-brothers and sisters, any less than you and I love our family and so on. And so Jesus, and I'll tell you something else, those whom you love best in this world have the greatest capacity to break your heart. And Jesus' heart is going to be broken by his brothers. I mean, that's, it's, it's that in, in every way Jesus is going to live through, uh, he's going to live real life. Now, i got to get to my, what we have in front of us this morning. As I say, and, and now I'm actually going to take you to your notes here very quickly. Uh, the, the, uh, 
our minds are naturally, and I think happily curious about those years. We're not told much about them, but there are a lot of really, uh, uh, frankly, wicked. I, I give you in that, that box there, I give you a, uh, a quote from uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas. All right, let me just talk to you. There are a number of spurious, late, written 100 to 400 years after Jesus, pseudo-gospels, uh, 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 fake gospels. And they have never, ever been accepted by anybody as, as, as genuine gospels. And I won't spend a lot of time with them other than to say that they are all of them Gnostic. What do you care? Well, the Gnostics were an early, uh, early heresy which infected the church, and it was basically the philosophy of Plato, which is dualism, and, you know, all uh, the, 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 the flesh is wicked, all matter is wicked, spirit is good. Who in the world cares? But the point is that they despise the doctrine of Jesus' genuine humanity. So they, they told these stories that, that uh, represented Jesus as, just as I keep saying, as Clark Kent, as just God pretending he was not really human. All right, so those, that's the character of these gospels from which I'm drawing. But I want to make a point here. So I'll just tell you one of the stories which is told in these Gospels, and I have it there. And, and the story is, all right, now, folks, everybody in the room, I'm looking especially for the young people. What I'm about to tell you is a, a, a lie, all right? This story never happened, and it's, it's wicked in all of its parts, all right? But I have a point to make. So the story is that Jesus is with some of his friends, and there's been some rain, and there's kind of this mud and clay, and so they are fashioning little animals out of the clay and setting those animals, the little animals they craft on, on, on a rock to dry in the sun, and Jesus is crafting these beautifully, uh, just beautiful little uh, uh, pigeons. So he has these little, little, little birds, and he's and, um, and, and somebody comes along and reminds the children that, in point of fact, it's Shabbat, and therefore they shouldn't be doing this on Shabbat. And the other children are all duly and appropriately ashamed, and they, they apologize, and they smash their little animals and so on. But Jesus is very defiant, and so he takes his little, his little uh, clay dove, and he sets it in his hand. And by the way, this story is told about three different places, including the Koran. But at any rate... So the story is that he places the dove on his hand, his little clay dove, and he blows on it, or sometimes different details, but he blows on it, and the little dove takes life and flies off. And all of his friends go, ooh. Now, that story, it's, it's wrong, all right? It didn't happen. It is, I tell it to you, because it is the, the more innocuous of many of the stories. Many of the stories are absolutely blasphemous. I mean, forgive me, but in one story, a kid in the marketplace bumps into Jesus, and Jesus is just a boy, he's just seven or eight years old, and is, is angry at it, so he turns the, the child into a goat. And, I mean, I know that's odious, and, 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 but again, all of these are late, false stories. And I, I address it only because I, 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 I well, the Bible is silent about these 30 years, except for the Luke 2 experience. And I think it's easy to kind of fall into the idea that maybe Jesus was a superboy. Maybe he was in some way, you know, just, just maybe had a halo. No, he didn't have a halo, for heaven's sakes. 
But uh, I think, the, I want to take you to Luke chapter 4. And so, if you will, Luke chapter 4, and, and uh, I think in, 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 in this story by Dr. Luke, uh, and by the way, don't forget that Luke was not a, an eyewitness, but he interviewed eyewitnesses. Uh, the, 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 the first gospel written, and if you want to argue about this, I'd love to do it. I'm right, but uh, the first gospel written was Matthew. It's so very important. And, and you know, uh, for, for, for Paul's entire ministry, for his ministry of three journeys, recording the book of Acts, he only had one book tucked up under his arm, and that was the book of Matthew. And everywhere he went, he, 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 he told that eyewitness account of Matthew. He read from that eyewitness account. And you know that uh, late in his, in his ministry, when he got to uh, Caesarea Maritima, he was being held there, Paul, after he had been uh, actually rescued in the temple up in Jerusalem, and he's there for two years in Caesarea Maritima, and he has his, his friend Luke with him, and his friend and travel companion and doctor and so on, and, and Paul realizes, and this is all the ministry of the Spirit of God directing Paul, Paul realizes that the Christian enterprise would be well served to have a gospel less entirely Jewish in its orientation. So he deputizes Luke, and while he is there at Caesarea Maritima, Luke has the opportunity, while Paul is being held there under house arrest, awaiting trial and so on, and giving his testimony again and again, but Luke has the opportunity to go up into the hills and to interview the principal players and so on, and he makes a big point of the fact that, now listen, folks, your faith is grounded in history. History in all of its parts happened a long time ago. And the fact is that the only dependable testimony to real history is eyewitness testimony. That's a biblical standard. The mouth of two or three witnesses shall ever matter be established. And though that's a jurisprudential canon, what are you doing in a court of law? You're trying to recover history. Am I making sense to you? So Luke is not an eyewitness, but he makes a big deal about the fact that he is, 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 this is eyewitness testimony. And so he undoubtedly sought out some of those uh, disciples who were with Jesus on this day and tells this remarkable story. You know, there's another passage. Let me take you back here. No, yeah, no, right here. Uh, uh, oh, okay, right here. I know where it is, I think. No, you know what? Hold on for dear life. I shouldn't do this, but... The, in, in Luke's transition statement between, uh, right here, uh, this, this is his transition statement between the, the incident at the age of 12 and when Jesus goes to be baptized. So these two verses right here, 51 and 52 of Luke 2, cover about 18 years of Jesus' life. When he was 12, he went to the temple. Now he's going to, be baptized, he's going to go to be baptized in Luke chapter 3, and, and Luke summarizes, and he says, uh, uh, and this is what we want to talk about this evening. He said, I'm sorry, in the next, in the next uh, session. But Luke says, then he went down with them, came to Nazareth, was subject to them. But notice verse 52, and this is 18 years summarized. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in, in stature and in favor with God and men. Now ask yourself, how did Luke know that? He had to, I, he had to I, I think he probably, during those two years, he had opportunity to go up to Jerusalem, up to, uh, actually to Bethlehem, where Mary is still living. And I picture Luke sitting down with Mary and just hearing her story. How did Luke know 
the story of the song that she sang. She had to tell him that. That was private. So Luke seeks out Mary, and I picture Luke saying, I don't know, can you imagine Luke saying, what were those years like? What was it like to raise this son of man, son of God? And maybe Mary gets a little contemplative and gets tears in her eyes and says, oh, Luke, what a boy. Oh, he was just full. He, he was full of wisdom, and he increased in wisdom and stature and great respect and so on. Luke had to learn that from Mary. Does that make sense to you? He's not making this up. And, uh, and eyewitness testimony is that is, it's absolutely necessary. Well, at any rate, now I go back. How's this? I'll roll by here. But in Luke chapter 4, let me get to this story here because I've got to be done. In Luke chapter 4, all right, here's my point. That even though we have only the Luke 2 experience in those, 18, those 30 years from infancy to, to, to when he goes to be baptized, the Bible is silent. Nonetheless, I think Dr. Luke is very deliberately giving us this incident in his life to give us a really solid, I wouldn't just a hint, but a, a solid indication of what those years were like. Now, let me just walk you through it, all right? So let me say, I was going to spend a little time, but I'll just say quickly, this is early in Jesus' public ministry. Now, Jesus was you remember that he went to be baptized, and as he came up out of the waters of the baptism, he was the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And you have the forty days of temptation, forty days of fasting, and then the temptation, and then angels come for several weeks to be sure and nurse him back to health, and then Jesus emerges from the. You know, I like to tell people. I think it's helpful that uh, the, the, the 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 baptism of Jesus was not the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, we think of it sometimes as the first act of his public life. It was the last act of his private life. He went to be baptized, and it was actually a private, Luke says, that everybody had gone home, so it was rather quiet. But after Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit forced him in the wilderness. You have the whole wilderness experience, and then after some months, three or four months, Jesus emerges, and now John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And what happened is that, uh, of course, uh, he, uh, he went to Cana and changed the water to wine. And some days or weeks later, he went to the first Passover of his public ministry and cleansed the temple for the first time. And then he ministered for a time down there in Judea. We, we re referred to it to, uh, last night. And, and then uh, uh, when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested and he knew his own life was in danger... He made his way up to Galilee again. I said this before, but Judea is dangerous for him because that's ruled by Pilate, who is entirely, entirely, uh, uh, the, the Jewish leaders can get Pilate to do their bidding. He goes to, to the north, to Galilee, and that's where Herod Antipas is reigning. And of course, the other thing is that Jesus has come to, 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 to make these remarkable claims to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he has to make those claims to that generation of Jews, and most of them live in Galilee. So he's going to spend 18 months up there in Galilee, and this is very soon after that 18 months begin. So he's, 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 he's already uh, changed the water to wine. He's already uh, catapulted himself into notoriety by cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. He's done other miracles and so on. Now he comes to, and, and, and again, uh, I, I, I was there, I should have showed you, but in John chapter 2, I mentioned before, and Matthew chapter 4, they both make the case that after the 
miracle at Cana, are you with me on that? Some weeks earlier, he had moved his family to Capernaum, which is huge, by the way. When he moved to Capernaum, he took his family with him because he was head of that family. But at any rate, so here we are in Nazareth, and, and we all know Jesus well. We know his family. But some weeks ago, and, and surprisingly enough, because the pattern was that you lived your life out in the village where you were born, but surprisingly enough, some weeks or months ago, Jesus had taken his family and moved to Capernaum. And so now in, he's, he's, he's begun his ministry, his headquarters are in Capernaum, down by the Sea of Galilee. We're up here in Nazareth, high on the Nazareth Ridge. But the point is that he comes back. And so pick the story up, finally, in verse 16 there. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Do you see what Lucas said? And then he says, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, I've already adumbrated this, but I'm going to suggest that, that a better reading, and, and, and it picks up on what Luke is trying to make, the point that he's trying to make here, is that he, he, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue that it was his custom to go to. In other words, not just that he, it was his custom to go to synagogue on Saturday morning, but it was his custom to go to this synagogue. In other words, this is his family synagogue, which means what? And here's where I'm taking you, that these are the people who know Jesus better than anyone else on earth knows him. These are the people, folks, do you understand, and I know a lot of people get confused about this, a synagogue is not the temple, there are no sacrifices there, it can't be, it's not a church, a synagogue is a gathering place. Now, there were these three times a week where you would gather for public reading of the scripture and prayers and so on, but in point of fact, your whole life was, it was the, it was the dating parlor, where's where you went to, not a dating parlor, but where you'd go to find a spouse for your child, it was, uh, you'd go to find work, all the, the latest news and so on. Are you Fiddler on the Roof fans? If not, what's wrong with you? But at any rate... Remember, Tevye, if I were a rich man all day long, I'd sit with the doctors. And I, that's what, you know, that's the, so, so the synagogue is the center of your life. As a matter of fact, uh, the Pharisees were powerful in the lives of the Jewish people because they had the capacity to put you out of the synagogue. Remember the man born blind in John chapter 9? That's serious. Don't be getting yourself put out of Grace Bible Church, okay? But I'm talking about something of a different degree. If you're tossed out of a synagogue, you probably have to move. You won't be able to. Uh, it's, it's, it's devastating. So my point is, the synagogue is your center of life. So, Jesus had lived his life with these people. Uh, uh, it, one of the, uh, uh, because, you know, I started to say something earlier that, that the Jewish people were all more, always more literate than others, and the reason was because Moses had taught them that they were a people of the book. He had said in Deuteronomy 31, He's talking about the five scrolls he's written, and he says, this is not a vain thing for you. This is your life, and therefore, teach it to your sons and your sons' sons after them. And so, and so it was the responsibility of, the, of a Jewish mother to teach her children to read, and as soon as a Jewish boy was able to read, uh, the, uh, he, was, he was trundled off to the synagogue school, the Beit Midrash. Every synagogue had a special room that, that they find these all the time that had, uh, they, 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 they understand, uh, was where the rabbi several days a week would tutor the young boys in, in Moses and so on. And so uh, Jesus undoubtedly had done that. He had, there were times where they were wrestling in the, in the courtyard or whatever, you know, and he had run and played with the other fellows and so on. 
And, uh, and, well, I'll just leave it at that. Jesus had lived his entire life. All right, now I can get to my point rather quickly. I rather sometimes build a big porch for a little house, and I'm going to have to do that right now. So, <laughs> so he came, and, he, and now, now notice, it says, as his, I'm going to read it this way. I think he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue that it was custom to go to. See, that's what Luke is trying to say. He went to where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, which was peopled by, by folks who knew him better than anybody else on earth knew him. Now, let me just explain very, very quickly. The standard synagogue service, and, and a bit of a caveat, it's a little dicey to extrapolate modern or what we have as synagogue services onto the first century one for one. But, but every indication is that this was a standard policy that even in Jesus' day, and it shows up in the New Testament a number of times, that in these, these tri-weekly uh, synagogue services, there would first of all be a reading from the Torah, from Moses. And there was a specially crafted desk which had, had sort of standards, and they would take the scroll, the appropriate scroll, and it was unrolled to the right place, and they would lay it on that desk, and uh, the, the scribe would stand. And by the way, the, remember now, those scrolls are animal skins, and, and, and they're going to be stretched taut, as it were, uh, as, as, as they're rested there, because... They don't want the, the scroll to touch the desk because there might be moisture or oil or something, and it would, it would, it would, it would you know, stain the back of the, the scroll, and then it would seep through, and maybe you couldn't read that. And uh, this is the Word of God, and, 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 and you need to get it just as God gave it. So they're very, very protective. The scribe is going to stand there, and he's got a little pointer, and he'll, he'll move through the text, and there'll be somebody standing at his shoulder looking over to make sure he gets it exactly right. So he reads the text, and then he puts that scroll back in the cupboard. It's called the ark, and there is a special seat in every synagogue called Moses' seat, and it's not where Moses sits. It's where the, the, the rabbi sits to make a little sermon on that passage of Moses. So he's going he's gonna to teach about Moses in Moses' seat. Jesus refers to that, the Pharisees who sit, the scribes who sit in Moses' seat. Then there is a portion of the, uh, an, uh, uh, another portion of the Hebrew Scriptures which is read, and they're, again, they're, they're, they're related. And if someone shows up who has some notoriety or, or, or maybe has given to the synagogue or something, you invite that person to read that portion. And uh, by the way, you always stand to read and sit to teach. And so... Uh, that's exactly what happens. And I want you to get into the moment a little bit because this is a local boy made good. We knew this boy all of his life. We grew up with him. We wept with him when he buried his father. We, we, we watched as he apprenticed his sons. And, I mean, not his sons, his, his, his siblings and so on. But the fact is that uh, he moved away just a little while. Now he's come home. And so Jesus is appropriate enough invited, and he's made a name for himself. And I'll tell you something else. He has some disciples with him. I better not get into that, but that's the, the, the disciples are the union card of a rabbi. That's how you demonstrate your rabbinical identity is to have disciples with you. So Jesus comes home, and he's invited. And so it says he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about whether or not Jesus actually selected this or this is already pre-selected. I'm convinced it was pre-selected because you're talking about a scroll, folks. If you, 
if, if Jesus says, I'd like to read from the Isaiah scroll, it's going to take them 10 minutes to get to Isaiah 61. I got four guys, you know, spinning those things. And, and so, uh, and, and every indication is, it's still done today, that, that this was handed him in, the providence, uh, providence, in God's providences. But when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I got to be quick. The point is that the passage Jesus reads is one of the most obviously, delightfully, unmistakably, universally recognized messianic prophecies. The Old Testament, this is Messiah. And he reads the passage that is so descriptive of Messiah. And then verse 20, it says, he closed the book, he gave it to the attendant, he sat down, this is exactly the protocol, and notice this, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here's this local boy made good, and now he stands and reads the Isaiah scroll, and he sits down, and everybody is so hungry to hear what he has to say. And his whole sermon was this. He began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now there's nobody in the room who didn't understand that Jesus was claiming to be Messiah. Now, I'd love to get into the dynamics of this, and, and, and it's, it's so careful and so deliberate, but just suffice it to say that he makes the claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. Now, here's where I'm taking you. This is the whole reason I'm giving you all this. So notice verse 22. All bore witness, and I've got it here in front of me, in the yellow. All bore witness to him. And they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, we knew there was something different about this guy ever since he blew on those clay pigeons and they flew off that afternoon. <laughs> See where I'm taking you? That's not what they said. What they said was, what's going on here? This is Joseph's son. Folks, this is my whole point this morning. When Jesus made the claim to be Messiah to the people who knew him the best, who had lived out every season, every event, every crisis, every, every moment almost of Jesus' life, when he claimed to be Messiah to the people who knew him throughout his life, they were stunned. They were amazed. Now, it's going to happen again in Matthew 13 when he returns to Nazareth, and he's going to do miracles, and they're going to say, what's going on here? This is Joseph's son. We have his brothers with us. We have his sisters with us. You see where I'm saying, taking you? If there's one word, and I put it on your notes, if there's one word, you have to write over Jesus' entire boyhood, entire life, up until his baptism. It is the word normal. He lived a life so absolutely ordinary that when he claimed to be Messiah, it, it, those who knew him best were absolutely dumbstruck. Now, that's hugely important. Jesus was not a superboy. He was not... And I'll go a step further here real quickly because I have one minute. Uh, when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God is going to fall upon him. Remember that? Dramatic. And you have to ask, what's going on there? Well, the Old Testament provides us the answer explicitly. Because again and again in the Old Testament, when God called a person to do something on behalf of the kingdom, on his behalf, 
he was King Yahweh, but when he called somebody to do something on his behalf, he would give them this special ministry of the Spirit to equip them to do that. We call this the theocratic anointing in theology, but it's all over the scriptures. The first guys who have this are two guys named Bezalel and, um, uh, what's the other guy's name? But at any rate, these two guys who, who go to bed one night and they're a doofus like I am and they wake up in the morning and they're Norm Abrams, I like to say. I don't know if you know Norm Abrams, but he's a carpenter on TV. But the point is that, uh, uh, and, and because God needed, King Yahweh needed a throne room and, and, and the, the Jews were real good at mud bricks and that's all. And so they needed somebody who could do all the artificing and, and, and Bezalel and, and his buddy. What in the world, can I believe I can't say that? But, uh, and, and, and again and again. All throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God in the book of Judges, every time a judge is, is identified, the Spirit of God came upon him. I like to tell people, I think we've got such a misconception of Samson. I think he was about uh, four foot eight and had a high voice and a, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, a pot belly and, and uh, spoke with a high voice and had a pocket protector, you know what I'm saying? But, but the point is that, that, that it's, it's when the Spirit of God comes upon Samson. Saul is out looking for his lost donkeys, a total doofus. The Spirit of God comes upon him. All throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God comes upon an especially. This is not the common experience the Old Testament is saying. It's a special equipping of the Spirit in order that a person might fulfill what God had called him to do. That's what happens at Jesus to Jesus at the. Th now, hear me on this, and we're done. I'm late. Hear me on this: that every other individual in the Scriptures who are, are thus anointed by God and thus equipped, that, that anointing is necessary because of who they are. They can't do it without this anointing. Does that make sense to you? In the case of Jesus, that special anointing is necessary because of who he had chosen to become. He took upon himself genuine humanity. So I will argue theologically, and I think it's not insignificant, that not only did, not, did Jesus not do all sorts of little miracles and so on before his baptism, he could not have done that unless he wanted to just throw off the entire incarnation you know, experiment. But by reason of the fact that he took upon himself genuine unfallen humanity, he was totally dependent upon the Father, upon the Spirit, and so now the Spirit comes upon him and, and enables him and directs him throughout his ministry. So important to understand. I, I, I say again and again that Jesus, during his ministry, had no more spiritual resources than you and I. You and I are totally dependent upon the Spirit, as was Jesus. So I put it all together. 30 years, silent years. We only have Luke 2. We'll talk about it in the next session. But the fact is, I think Luke gives us a marvelous insight that makes the case in terms of a narrative that Jesus lived a life throughout those 30 years that was entirely normal. So much so that those who, never, who knew him best never even suspected that he was the Messiah. Does that make sense to you? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and the gift of your son. Thank you for this blessed place. And Father, thank you for the record that we have. Might we understand it aright and might, we, might your spirit impact our hearts and lives with it. Thank you for it in Christ's name.